turn with me for the first time in a while to Jeremiah chapter 17. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Jeremiah 17. Good to be turning back to the prophets after some time away. And normally after a break like this, normally after a break this long, we'd be thinking about taking a week to review or refresh or remember where we were. Providentially enough, as we turn to chapter 17, Jeremiah is actually going to kind of do that for us this evening. We know the theme of Jeremiah. We remember that much. At least I hope we do. The big idea is God is declaring judgment to Judah. Coming judgment. Soon judgment. His people have sinned. They've persisted in their sin despite correction, despite admonition. Continued in their sin to the point where they're demanding judgment. To the point where if God doesn't judge, he's essentially denying himself. And God can't do that, right? God can't be something that he's not. He can't not be just. He can also be gracious and merciful and kind and long-suffering. He is and he can and he does. But Judah insisted, persisted, in presuming on that, assuming that mercy would just continue indefinitely despite their sin heaped upon sin heaped upon sin, despite their lack of repentance. So God says, the time has come. The time I didn't want to come. The time that I hoped wouldn't come. The time that I warned you about has come. Really what he's saying is that it's fast approaching and here's how, here's who, here's what, even a little bit of here's when. God's getting into the details about this coming judgment, speaking through Jeremiah, so that when judgment comes, when it falls, they won't be confused about what's happening and why. Think about every parenting book you've ever read, every parenting seminar or conference you've ever been to. If, if, you, if, if you don't take away anything else, you remember, you can't just punish children when they do wrong. They have to understand what they did wrong, and they have to understand the connection between what they did wrong or the consequence, or it's not going to have, well, it's going to have an effect. It's not going to have the desired effect. It won't, it won't correct anything. It'll just teach kids to be afraid and maybe to view their parents as capricious and arbitrary and hot-tempered all of which are things that God is not. All of, things, all, all of which are things that God is, is taking pains to not be accused of. So as we turn back to Jeremiah 17, that remains very much the thrust, the, the theme, the through line. And it's useful to keep that, that big picture in mind because the chapter is otherwise a little incoherent. Not, it's the wrong word. Um, it's understandable. It's not incoherent in the sense that it doesn't make sense. But it's not one unified message. It's not cohesive, I think, is what I was going for. It's not one 
well, it's not one sermon. There might be, scholars argue about this, there might be as, as many as seven distinct sermons contained in what we call chapter 17. Some, some commentators refer to chapter 17 as Jeremiah's junk drawer or his miscellaneous file. However we think of it, there's a variety of things that he's going to touch on tonight, but all under that umbrella of crime and punishment. People have sinned, judgment is coming. And so, so I think it's going to be a good on-ramp for us back into Jeremiah. Verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond that is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And I'll cause you to serve your enemies in the land that you do not know. For you've kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. What did God just say? He said their sin is not superficial. It's not trivial, and it's not just on the surface. It's, it's not some behavioral quirks. and this is, this is a heart issue. Israel's issue, Judah's issue, is, is that their hearts are twisted and perverted. And that's not something you can just put a Band-Aid on or, or rub some ointment on. This is something that requires heart surgery, God is saying, to repair the sin that's been etched into their heart. This is an inward condition reflected in outward behavior. And that's an idea that God's going to return to later in the chapter. Inward condition reflected in outward behavior. Behavior like sacrificing on altars. Altars, plural. If it were just one altar, we might say, okay, what's wrong with their sacrifice at the temple? Altars, plural, tells us this refers to idolatrous altars to false gods scattered through the lands. And of course, everything is wrong with that. And, and that idea continues in verse 2, wooden images, specifically asherim, wooden poles used in the worship of Asherah, one of the Canaanite fertility deities while their children remember all of this. Difficult translation here. That could mean that there were revivals under Hezekiah and Josiah. There were, and, and those revivals were good, good enough to, to temporarily turn things around, but not enough to wipe out the remembrance of those idols. Not enough to erase the idolatry from their children's memory, and when they got older, they went back to idol worship. That, that's one way to read that. Another way to read it, and maybe a simpler way, is you know the names of false gods as well as you know the names of all your children. Difficult to translate from the Hebrew. Either way, it's not good, right? Either way, idolatry is prevalent in the land. And because of it, Jerusalem, the mountain, Jerusalem, a city on a hill, verse 3. Jerusalem is going to be handed over to the enemy. The temple is going to be handed over. The places of false worship within the, the boundaries of the land, handed over. The wealth, handed over. The heritage. What's the heritage that, that God's referring to? The heritage is the land. 
That's their inheritance. And they're going to be put out of that inheritance. They're going to be put out of the land. Not forever, but for a time. They're going to serve foreign, they're going to serve enemies in a foreign land. Foreign gods in a foreign land, which we know to be Babylon. That hasn't been revealed to them yet. Here, verse 4, God says, forever. But we know from previous study, forever is a slippery term in the Hebrew. It doesn't have to mean indefinite or infinite the way that it typically does in English. It can mean that, but it can also mean what it means here, until a fixed period of time, until a lifespan or a sentence is completed. And there's actually a subtle hint here of how long that period is going to be. Let go of heritage, verse 4. Let go of can also be translated to discontinue or to lay down or to let go. The word is shamat. It's the same word in Exodus 23, 11 that God uses to instruct the Israelites, hey, one every seven years, let the land go. Let the land go fallow. Don't, don't farm it. Let it have a Sabbath once every seven years. And of course, we remember Israel's failure to do so determine the length of their judgment. For 190 years, that should have been, divide by seven, 70 years that the land was at rest. Israel didn't do it. That determined the length of God's sentence, the length of their exile. And we can triangulate that from 2 Chronicles 36.21 that says it more explicitly. Just kind of a, a cool hint below the surface here. Okay, got to get out of the weeds. We're not going to finish the chapter. I'm out of practice. <laughs> Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its root by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Some people look at verses 5 and 6 as Jeremiah coming at Jehoiakim or Zedekiah, the last couple kings of Judah before the final invasion, the last couple kings who are frantically trying to remain in control, trying to stay in power through various foreign alliances. And then, and then that's possible, but I think it's more likely a general commentary on just who, who, who people are, on what humanity is. And Jehoiakim and Zedekiah and others just happen to fall into that. I think it's a broad commentary on the danger of people trusting people rather than trusting God. Because what God describes here is the difference between being cursed and being blessed. Trusting in people versus trusting in God. A tree struggling in the desert where there's no water and a tree prospering by the stream, prospering by what God will describe later in the chapter as living waters. And obviously this evokes Psalm 1, right? What's interesting here, though, that doesn't come across maybe as clearly in Psalm 1, is the tree by the stream is not passive. We can read Psalm 1 and we can walk away thinking, okay, I just have to hang out 
And as long as I think Jesus thought everything is going to be fine. The verb here, spread out, is, has a very active connotation. Send, stretch, push out, stretch out are other ways that it can be translated. It's an active verb. And so the idea here is that there's peace, freedom from anxiety, there's safety, and there's fruit in pursuing God rather than just remaining inert near God. Verse 9 might be a continuation of that thought. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Answer, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Verse 9 might, this is one of those places, was that part of the same message? Or is this a different message that's just set by side by side because there's a, a thematic similarity? Are they side by side because they're the same message or, or just talking about the same thing? Either way, verse 9 is pretty familiar to us, right? I almost quoted verse 9 on Sunday. I think I had it in my notes and, and blew past it because we were talking about who we were, how, how all of us are before Jesus, dead and defiant and depraved and deceived would have fit really nicely right in there. Whole alliteration and everything. Would have fit, would have been accurate, and, and would have been a good way to plug, hey, we're back in Jeremiah on Wednesday. This Sunday, we're, we're circling back, and God is going to again underscore, through Paul in Ephesians, that idea that that's who we are apart from Jesus. We all start off in the same place, and he's going to go on and really underline Jew and Gentile makes no difference. Humanity's heart, what, whatever our ancestry is, is deceitful. We don't know our own heart. What's interesting is, is, again, the root here shows up a lot of different places in the Old Testament. The idea that, that our heart is depraved, but we think it isn't. We're deceived. That word deceived describes Jehu going against the servants of, of Baal. It describes Joshua going against Ai, the second time in Joshua chapter 8. It describes Jacob, whose name is heel catcher, but what does heel catcher mean? He's a trickster, he's a deceiver. The first appearance of this root is Genesis 3.15, describing Satan, who's, who's going to come against Jesus and bruise his heel. How does Satan attack? Through deception. He attacks the line of Christ through deception by appealing to our hearts that we think we understand but really don't. Some translations render, instead of deceitful, render this desperately sick. Our hearts are desperately sick. It, I, I don't think it's as, as accurate. No, it's, it's as accurate. I don't think it's as, as precise. How are our hearts sick? But Jeremiah 15 and, and Jeremiah 30 both, both render this a wound that's incurable. And I think that's rich, because that certainly describes the condition of our heart. Incurable apart from the blood of Jesus. And it's a condition that only God fully understands. We don't understand our heart unless God reveals it to us. Only God can show us what's wrong. Only God can fix what's wrong. 
And verse 11 illustrates the point. Again, verse 11 could be freestanding. It could be attached to verse 10. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days. And at his end, he will be a fool. Sounds like a proverb. And there's a couple of proverbs that say very much the same thing. Um, not with this same picture. The picture here is, is of the partridge that in, in, in Jeremiah's day was believed to hatch eggs that didn't belong to her. Um, and it, it, this could just be an accident of translation as well, um, because there is a bird in the Middle East, the sand grouse actually hatches eggs that it doesn't lay. Um, and, and then what happens, the, the, the chicks are born, the chicks look around and say, you're not my mom. And, and so the deception works for a little while, but eventually the chicks figure out, yeah, we're, we're not of the same kind here. And, and God is using that picture to say, hey, if you make your fortune by wicked means, people watching might be confused. They might think that you're really you know, a brilliant business person or something. You might even believe your own nonsense. You might, you might believe your own lies. You might deceive yourself. The one who won't be deceived is God. And eventually God will judge. He will remove those, those ill-gotten gains. That's what's going to happen to Judah is the subtext. Shifting gears, kind of, verse 12. Um, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. A kind of a, kind of a ray of sunlight here in what's otherwise a kind of a dark passage. One of the challenges that we've encountered, if, 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 you're starting to, if it's starting to come back, if you're starting to get the rhythm back with Jeremiah, you'll remember one of the challenges that we've encountered is figuring out at any given time, who's talking? And, and it's usually one of two things. It's either Jeremiah speaking for God, or it's Jeremiah speaking to God. And sometimes it's hard to know which is which. Is, is Jeremiah giving, giving voice to, to words that God has given him, God has shown him? Or is, is Jeremiah speaking to God, interceding, praying? Verse 12, it's pretty clear the, the voice shifts, right? Verse 12 isn't an exhortation from God. This is a prayer. This is, this is Jeremiah kind of bearing his soul, acknowledging the only place of peace and safety in the universe is with the Lord. The, where God is, we can, we can debate, you know, scholars like to parse, okay, what throne is this? Is this the throne in Jerusalem? Is Jerusalem as a whole the throne because that's where the throne is? Is it specifically the Ark of the Covenant of the Temple? Is this the, the throne of God in heaven? It, it, I, don't, I don't think that's worth parsing because the bigger point is where God is is safety and hope. And only where God is are those things found. Why is this significant? Jeremiah is repenting of something that he said back in chapter 15, verse 18. Glance back there for just a moment. Jeremiah 15, verse 18. Jeremiah, again, praying, lamenting. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? We just talked about that, right? 
which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Jeremiah is repenting for what he said sometime previously. He said back in chapter 15, God, you deceived us. You weren't with us. You made promises to us that you didn't keep. You promised that you'd be a fountain of living water, and guess what? The stream dried up. But what Jeremiah is saying here, coupled with what he said in verse 9 and verse 10, he's, he's, he's acknowledging, God, we, we deceived ourselves. You're the, you're the one where help comes from. You are the fountain of living water. The end of verse 13. We were wrong. So there's, there's some repentance going on here. There's, there's a confession. And in light of that, he goes on to pray, verse 14, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Juan talked last week, I think he, he referenced that acronym that, that we refer to so often in prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then supplication. We, we, we can argue whether there's thanksgiving here or not, but, but there was real adoration a moment ago and confession. He he. he, he goes back to chapter 15, verse 18, and, and says that incurable condition, God, you didn't cause it. You're the cure for it. And having realized that and having confessed that, Jeremiah now has the standing to go before the Lord and say, God, can I ask you something? Would you heal me? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? Would you deliver me? From what? From my enemies. Who, who we've read in earlier chapters, are ridiculing and mocking him incessantly, accusing him of, of being a false prophet. They say to me, where is the word of the Lord? You have all this doom and gloom that you preach, Jeremiah. I don't see it. I don't think it's ever going to come. Jeremiah goes on to say, I know it's going to come. As for me, verse 16, I've not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. I'm only preaching the things you give me to preach. I'm only saying the things you give me to say. I'm not talking about anything that, that I thought up, and I'm not talking about anything that I really want to happen. I'm not excited for this day of destruction that you keep telling me to warn them about. What's his point? His point is, God, I'm being obedient. Will you save me from the consequences of my obedience. Will you save me from these knuckleheads that I'm ministering to? That's his first ask. His second ask, verse 17, do not be a terror to me. You're my hope in the day of doom. God, protect me. His first request was, God, protect me from those I'm prophesying to. His second is, God, protect me from the things I'm prophesying. This day of doom doesn't sound like the most fun that, that, that a person can have. Will you shelter me, guard me, Defend me from it. And then the third thing that he asks, verse 18, let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Punish them, he's asking. Punish them twice. Punish them, give them everything that 
they want to have happen to me. Everything they want for me, let it fall on them and punish them for the stuff that you were already going to punish them for. Punish them twice. Punish them for the sin against you and the sin against me. And you and I, with our New Testament sensibilities, read that and we say, that's vengeance. Yes, yes it is. Well, why does God leave that in there? Why doesn't he correct that? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit amend that, fix that? Because it's a, it's a reminder that without taking refuge in the Lord, back to verse 12, without allowing God to be our shelter and our strong tower, unless we make him our sanctuary, vengeance is all we got. Justice, judgment, wrath, destruction, that's the only option. Finally, we come to the close of the chapter. We got nine verses to wrap things up about the Sabbath, which kind of brings back what I said at the beginning of chapter 17 being sort of Jeremiah's miscellaneous folder or his, his junk drawer. And it, and it seems at first like that's really true for this last part because it's a, it's a, it, it seems like a dramatic change in subject. And we have no idea when he's giving this. I, I say we have no idea. There's no consensus would be a better way of putting it. Lots of people have lots of ideas. Some people say this was very early on in his ministry, and other people are convinced this was written during exile and it only came to light after the people returned. There's lots of ideas, no consensus. But, but let's read it, because I think it has more to do with what came before than many people give credit for. Thus the Lord said to me, so this is no longer Jeremiah speaking to God, it's God speaking to Jeremiah. Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. So if you ask me when I think he spoke this, I think it had to be early because there were still kings. And, and kings, plural, maybe it was very early in his ministry, but I, I'm probably wrong. Um, but the idea is go stand where the kings are, go stand in all of the other gates. Stand in all the places where people of every class and, and category are so everybody hears this. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. This is for everybody. Verse 21, thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey, nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they may not hear nor receive instruction. Hey, keep the Sabbath. I've been saying this ever since I've been talking to you guys. And you haven't listened, but you need to listen. Keep the Sabbath. Which sounds legalistic, again, to our 20, uh, 21st century, to our New Testament ears, because we've read the words of Jesus about the Sabbath. And Jesus seemed to have a much less legalistic position 600 years later. The thing is, he was talking to a different group of people about a different problem they had with the Sabbath. We've got to read this in context and, and in context, taken together with the rest of what we've read in this chapter, what is God saying? What is he meaning? 
I think what he's saying is that Sabbath keeping, or lack thereof, is evidence of everything that he's talking about starting back in verse 1. Back in verse 1, God says, your hearts are set against me. Sin is chiseled into them with a, with a diamond tip. Your hearts are set against me and you prove it at every opportunity. What does Sabbath keeping have to do with the rest of it? God is saying, Sabbath is a heart check. Because, because what does the rest of the word of God say? If God is who he says he is, God who provides, God who protects, God who blesses those who obey him, then there's no reason not to keep the Sabbath. What is the incentive for not keeping the Sabbath? I need to work that seventh day or I might not have enough. But if God is who he says he is, and he's a promise-keeping God who blesses those who obey, then provision and protection is his problem. So they don't need to go pray to other gods in case God doesn't show up or in case he isn't enough. They don't need to cheat or steal or amass wealth by wicked means. And they don't need to work that seventh day. Everything God has been calling out in this chapter is a function of Judah not believing God. Now the Pharisees, why did Jesus approach the subject differently? Because the Pharisees had the same problem in reverse. They thought because they kept the Sabbath, that covered their lack of spirituality in every other area. Hey, we're, we're, we're holy and righteous on the outside, so it doesn't matter that our hearts are corrupt. Different, same issue, but, but in reverse, which is why Jesus addressed it differently. Here, God is saying, hey, who you are on the inside is evident on the outside in the way that, that you worship false gods, in the way that, that you use wicked means to amass wealth, in the way that you don't keep the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping here, God is saying, is a barometer for what people really think about God's promises. Because God would promise, verse 24, to obey is, is blessing. It shall be, verse 24, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of the city kings and princes, sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. And they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Are we still talking about the Sabbath? Well, yeah, he said if you keep the Sabbath. Is he talking about more than the Sabbath? I think maybe. Because where does Sabbath keeping begin? God just told us it begins in the heart. How do we know? That's how the chapter began. And when do we see verse 25 and 26 fulfilled? When does that actually happen? After the second coming, right? That's a pretty good description of everything that we read in the later chapters of Isaiah, right? 
the kingdom being set up, kings and people coming from every direction to worship and sacrifice at the feet of Jesus, what has to happen before the second coming? The people have to give their hearts to the Lord. They have to confess their sin and determine that they're going to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. What happens to those who reject Jesus? Verse 27. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. When does that happen? 586 B.C. is the easy answer of the last invasion of the Babylonians. When else does it happen? 70 A.D. Why? Because they rejected Jesus who is our Sabbath rest. To reject the Sabbath is to reject Jesus. January 3rd, I think. Yeah? January 3rd. Tomorrow's my brother's birthday. I need to call him. Still early enough for resolutions. Jeremiah just reminded us that real resolutions, the kind that count, the, the kind that matter, the kind that last, can't be about behavior modification. They have to be about heart transformation. God's not interested in behavior modification, or the Pharisees would have, would have been applauded. Jesus would have clapped in their presence. Yeah, you guys are behaving right. Instead, he reserved his, his harshest criticism for them. Why? Because of the condition of their hearts. Issues of disobedience in our lives, places where my conduct doesn't line up with my creed, places where I'm compromising, what I'm, what I'm saying in doing that is that I don't fully trust God. I don't think that God has my best interests at heart when he says this way, not that way. What I'm saying is I don't think God is enough when he says like this and not like this. What I'm saying is that I need to be like Israel. I need to hedge my bets in case God doesn't come through. That's what sin is. And I'm not going to fix that with willpower. I'm not going to change that by, by trying really hard or white-knuckling or, or, or even asking people to hold me accountable because I, until I confront the question, what do I think about God, I'm going to keep missing the mark. And the way to change what I think about God is to engage with God. The way to change what I think about God is prayer. The way to change what I think about God is his word. The way that I change what I think about God is people of God. Letting them in, letting them know me, letting them challenge me. And together those things might persuade me to let God change my heart.
Lord, we pray that you would this year. We pray that you would this week, this night, as we recognize that we do fall short. And as you show us that next area of obedience to to pursue. As as you open our eyes to to the ways that we're hurting ourselves by allowing you to be less than who you want to be in our lives. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to speak to us, to convict us. And thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, that when we call upon your name, as Jeremiah does in this chapter, when we acknowledge who we are and what we're doing, Your mercy abounds, and your power abounds. And as we surrender to you more and more, your glory abounds. May that be our year, Lord. May that be our lives.